Dallas Willard uh, was a man I've learned a lot from about spiritual formation and discipleship. He was a uh, philosophy professor at USC um, and wrote on spiritual formation most of his life and uh, influenced many of us with one of his books uh, called The Divine Conspiracy, uh, kind of groundbreaking on, on the holistic character of Jesus beyond just trying to figure out a bunch of questions and a bunch of issues. But, uh, but uh, the quote that he says that stuck with me this week is this, it turns out that what you believe about Jesus is revealed in what you do after you realize you don't have to do anything at all. What you believe about Jesus is revealed in what you do after you realize you don't have to do anything at all. Uh, these weeks we are in the, in the middle during Lent of talking about what Jesus has done. What the power of the cross is in transformative Christian faith. And, uh, but what we, so, so we've been talking about what, what Jesus has done on this side, but on the other side then talking about real life and what we do in response. Uh, but I want us to begin today by simply sitting with this and remembering that Jesus has done everything. So then, what will our lives look like if that's true? If it's actually true that Jesus has gone before us, that Jesus set us free, that Jesus has dismantled the powers that, that hold us captive and even our world captive, how now will we live when we understand that Jesus has actually done everything? Which is kind of a, an interesting question. So here's, here's our setup. Um, what would you do if you had one day left to live? What would you do? Go ahead. Let's just indulge it. Call some things out. If you knew you had a day left to live, what, what would you do? Eat good food, family. <laughs> Skydive. Sky would you climb some Rocky Mountains too? And go 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu? That's a little Tim McGraw reference to those of you who like country music. Skydive. What else? One day left. Long walk on the beach. Favorite places. It's a fascinating question, isn't it? To think. Um, but but here's, here's the fascinating thing. Uh, Jesus did know that he had a day left. And so what Jesus did, knowing that he had a day left to live, should really be influential in our, in our lives. Uh, the cross shapes our faith by showing us what is most important, by revealing what's most important in, in life, period. It's the moment by which, I mean, think about the, the significance of it. It's the moment by which we tell, the, tell time, Right? I mean, these, these are the events that started our modern-day telling of time on the earth, on the, in the Western world. So, so this is so significant, but it's not just what Jesus does on the cross, it's what Jesus did on the way to the cross, knowing that he was heading there. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to simply work our way uh, through John 13, the beginning verses, and, um, and we're just, we're just going to kind of um, talk through it, and I'm going to teach through it just a little bit, the first 17 verses. It's a story that many of you are familiar with, um, and we're not going to hit all of it. I've actually taught in this a number of times, and I love it, and we could go piece by piece for everything, but I'm going to kind of lean us toward a a single emphasis, so I'm going to kind of move quickly through a couple spots. And so I don't even have all of them up um, on the screen. I'm not going to have all the verses. So I'll read you the whole story, but um, I'm going to skip skip some, uh, some verses of being putting them up, and I'll just read them instead. So here's what's happening. It was just before the Passover festival, okay? This is, this is the Passion Weekend. We are in Jerusalem now, all right? And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Okay, so the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. That means the time was approaching the, the cross was approaching. That's, that's what we're saying. Jesus was aware that the end is in sight, that all of his ministry was culminating in this, that he had upset enough of the powers that be that there was no other way except condemnation from both Romans and the religious establishment, the state and the church. <laughs> um, we're both going to be coming at him. So here's, here's what we're told. So he knows that this is, this is his last day. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Which is a very strange phrase for us. We rarely use something like that. This idea of, um, of love them uh, to, to the end here. So, so what I want you to see is that word. Oh, I should have brought my little pen. Um, that word to the end is the Greek word telos. Is that word? All right. So, um, so the Greek word telos, which is end, literally does not mean, um, it, it, it's a word about completion, okay? It's saying that Jesus loved them in this moment. He decided he wanted to love them in its fullest form, to the absolute completion of what love looks like. So it doesn't mean he loved them to the end of his life. It means he loved them in absolute completeness. So what we're about to see is ex- essentially, you know, um, you know what, uh, I, I can't remember which version does it, but the fullest extent of his love uh, is how some translate it. Uh, he now, he loved them to the fullest extent. Um, that's, that gets at this thing, but I want you to think about when we're, we're about to hear this story, Jesus is accomplishing the deepest purpose of love. Loving them to the climax, to the ultimate, to the, um, to, in, in a paramount way. Okay, so that's, that's what we're seeing here. All right, so we're about to see what love looks like in its ultimate expression, at least according to the scriptures. Okay, all right. Um, the evening meal was, um, was in progress, all right, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, uh, to betray Jesus. All right, so we know that at this table is both the disciples of Jesus who would eventually remain and become the apostles as well as the one who would betray Jesus. All right. Here's verse 3. Significant. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, all right, we're just going to stop there because you need to see that word. Okay. So, so means that in light of the previous statement, something else is about to come. All right. So, the previous statement says Jesus knows 
that he has complete authority. He knows how powerful he is. He knows that he is an absolute extension of God himself. And there is oneness. And in light of both knowing who he was and knowing that he had power, here's what he does. So, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, uh, I don't want to get bogged down on this case too much in the culture of the moment, but if uh, you haven't been around or if you haven't heard this before, let me just give a basic understanding of the culture in the ancient Near East here with, with uh, Jerusalem. So at each house, um, whenever there was a person of authority, uh, the way that you would welcome and begin to show hospitality was by washing the washing of feet. You would wear sandals or barefoot on the road. The road was dusty, caked with dirt, and and a lot of other things because of, you know, donkeys and horses and stuff like that. And so, so you literally were, it was symbolic because there wasn't a lot of soap often available, uh, but it was also real. You were, you were um, cleaning the dust and the dirt off of your feet. It was a refreshing moment of being reminded that you were transitioning into a, a place of hospitality. Now, whoever, if there was not a slave present or a servant present, whoever was the lowest in the room would bear the responsibility of washing feet, okay? That's how kind of standard society worked at this point. But there were limits. So in, it's really interesting, in the, uh, in the law of um, the teaching for what disciples and rabbis, how they were supposed to interact, there was a specific caveat that said if you're a disciple of a rabbi, you would follow him around, you would do everything that he asked pretty much, uh, but you could draw the line at taking off his shoe and washing his feet. So it was that low. But even disciples, you don't have to do that. You're expected to follow your rabbi and do what he says and be absolute imitators and obedient, but, but you, you're allowed to keep your dignity by not doing the foot washing. Okay, so we have to understand, this isn't like, let me open the door for you. You know, this is something really, really significant. So significant that it would have been off-putting to the disciples. This is, this is uncomfortable. This, this is making me feel weird, Jesus. You shouldn't be doing this, okay? This is truly not your place. Like, I know, I know, like, you talk about kindness and stuff, but, like, this doesn't match your station. It's just not supposed to happen in, the, in this culture. So that's what we're doing when we hear a moment like this. So Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet, and he dries them, so, so in order to, to get down, he's, he's down, he's low. He's got a day left to live. He's got a day left to live. And he's down, he's low. He's taking their feet in his hands. He's got a basin. He's pouring water. He's drying them off. And there's a lot of silence and there's a lot of confusion. And he gets to Peter. And Peter, like the common lead disciple's role would have been, is to speak up and say what everybody's thinking. Uh, and so he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Like, incredulously, in other words. Like, you can't possibly think that this is going to happen. I, if this is a test, Peter thinks everything's a test. That's my theory. That's my theory. Peter thinks everything's a test. As, as shown by later, 
in the book of Acts, when he gets a vision about God declaring all food clean, he thinks it's a test that he has to resist. And so he says, surely not, Lord. I know. I know there's a test. I'm going to get this right. So Peter kind of thinks everything's a test in my mind. So I imagine Peter saying, I see maybe this is a test, and I want to show that, that I, know, I know my place and I know your place. And so he says, you can't possibly be planning on washing my feet, Jesus. And Jesus probably surprises him with the response. And he says, first of all, you don't understand. You're still not getting it. Hopefully you will. He says, you don't realize now what I am doing. Um, And I don't have this on the screen. Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but you will understand later. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. So Peter digs in and becomes more adamant. Now probably moving away from the test to I'm really uncomfortable with this. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. This is very, very, very interesting. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. I'm sorry. And, and there must be some type of authority in Jesus' voice because Peter quickly does a turnaround. And Peter says, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Like if, if, if I have to be washed by you in order to be, to be welcome, to be included, then like absolutely, like I'm all in. You know, this is the same Peter that jumps out of the boat and then the boat probably beats him to shore. You know, like he's just, the, he's that type of a guy. Um, so he says, I'm all in. And, and then Jesus says to him, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. So he's, I'm trying to do something, something symbolic, Peter. There's no, there's no like holiness in this action itself apart from what it is communicating. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Okay, and then we just have a period. And so what happens after this period is he continues to wash everybody's feet. And we just breeze right over this, except for the fact that it's within that that space between the period and the next sentence that Jesus washes Jesus' feet. He's got a day left to live. And Jesus sits there and he takes on a servant role by offering hospitality and care to the same person that's eventually going to betray him. Not eventually, immediately. And he knows it. He's aware of what's happening within him. Verse 12, here we go. When he had finished washing their feet, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. So now he's becoming, he's moving back into a teacher role. And he's saying, what just happened, you need to understand what I'm trying to communicate through this. He says, do you understand what I've done? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Hard stop there. It's really important that Jesus says, I am not in the midst of what just happened. I'm not relinquishing my role of leadership in your life. Super important. He reiterates, you call me teacher and Lord for that's who I am. That's, that's what I do. That's my role in your life. So don't think that because I just did this thing that that means that I am no longer the authority for you. Don't disconnect these things. I'm, 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 not, I'm not relinquishing my role. I'm redefining it for you. Right? Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... You should wash one another's feet. 
So it's interesting. The first thing he does is he, he defines authority and influence. And he says, I do have authority and influence in your life. But here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like. And then he says something, and we might, we might imagine that he's about to say, and now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should be willing to wash mine. Of which all of the disciples would have been like, absolutely, that's how it ought to work. But that's not what he says. There's a given there that if you are following me, you will want to serve and desire. But what I am saying is if you want to imitate me, then you're going to look to one another and wash their feet. Not just serve the master, but serve your fellow neighbors. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I have set you an example. And then he finishes by saying this, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Okay? So what he's saying now is he's, he's, uh, he's trying to challenge them by saying, Listen, what I just did is not above you because you're going to be tempted by that. So this is a little bit of a hard nudge because servant and master is disciple and, and rabbi language right here. So he says, no servant is greater than his master. So, so don't think, my friends, once I'm not around anymore, that somehow you're above this and this was just a one-off moment. He's like, I'm teaching you. I am teaching you. And then he finally says, now that you see these things, you will be blessed. Or now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Uh, I, I want to talk about that final word, and then we'll kind of get into, um, into it just a little bit more. Uh, the, the word blessed, same word in, uh, in um, the Beatitudes at the beginning of the book of, Ma- or at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. But uh, blessed literally just means happy. We want to put like this sacred element to it. But literally, he's, he's saying you'll be happy if you do these things, if you put them into practice. So why? Why will you be happy <laughs> if you do this, these actions symbolically washing the feet of your fellow neighbors? What, what does this look like? And why, You know, there's two things, I think, that, that help us understand um, the idea of, of this, this blessed. And the first thing is... Um, is that we are told from a theological level that God honors those who care more about servanthood than self-promotion. So yes, when Jesus says you'll be happy, you'll be blessed if you do them, you will know that you are in line with God's heart and that God honors that in you. Okay? Um, you know, self-promotion is, is kind of consumed with high accolades or impressive resumes, spiritual resumes. You know, I just imagine Jesus' spiritual resume... Um, you know, list like three years, servant, primary duty, washing feet. Um, you just don't get hired for that kind of a, uh, a skill, um, typically. And so, so there's this understanding of instead of self-promotion, when Jesus sees, when, when the Father, when God sees that, that we choose to move in this direction, there is a, a spiritual blessing. There is God saying, I honor that. That's the way that I have intended for you to live. And I see that and it, and it brings my heart joy. Or when we move, um, I think, beyond our desire for intellectual perfection, right? Paul says that in, in 1 Corinthians that if I can fathom all mysteries, but I don't have love, I'm as useless as a gong. Sorry for you percussionists in the room. Uh, like, so, so this idea of, of saying... Um, 
there is something that God honors when we place servanthood-type love above impressiveness or intellectual certainty as foundational for our faith. But then there's something else that I think makes us happy about this. That Jesus says, you will be happy, you will be blessed if you do these things that I've shown you. And that is that the way, this way of life literally is truly the better way to live. Uh, this, this is what I think, this is where I think that Christians really misrepresent Christian faith sometimes. Many of us, uh, you know, have heard the emphasis of like carrying your cross and laying your life down. But, but what that looks like in the Jesus way is a self-giving that is incredibly meaningful and purposeful and has joy and, 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 um, and value attached to it. Sometimes we act like being a Christian is so miserable and hard that nobody around us would ever want to be a Christian. They're like, why? I've literally heard people say, why would I want that? All Christians are so guilt-ridden, and they're just miserable, and when they help others, there's like, they feel like they deserve like a big reward, or, or they complain. It's all humble brags. Like, they do all this stuff for other people, and then it's just so, you know, it's hard. I wish I could be like you, and you know, you just, you just never help anybody else, and you must be so happy. Um, but I don't know. There's just this sense that we don't understand that it's not just the spiritual benefits after we die that the Jesus life leads us to. It's the personal benefits right now by living a way of life. If we live, if we learn to live like we have one day left to live, and the way that we live is how we will live one day, then we will find that it is so fulfilling now. Does that make sense? I'm playing with that. I didn't plan on that, but I was sitting here and I started thinking about one day and I started thinking about that Modest Yahoo song that I really like. And, and I started thinking, you know, if we, if we understand that when Jesus had one day left to live, instead of all this self-indulgence, instead of doing whatever he wanted, he did something that looked like radical love and caring compassion for others, which is the way that we all will one day be able to embrace the world when God recreates all things and makes all things new and there is absolute justice and care and compassion and there's no more crying and no more tears, no more violence, no more oppression, no more abuse. And people care for one another in the kingdom. If we begin to live like it will be one day, then all of a sudden you find that life is just better. If, if you learn to know Jesus, then at the end of your life, you won't say, well, at least I've got heaven coming because, like, it was just such a pain to love people all my life here. And God's going to reward me for all of my sacrifice. But instead we say, wow, God opened up a door for me to experience the fullness of life right now because it is far better to love, caring, to live, caring for others and loving selflessly than it is to just live for myself, and I've got this incredible hope of eternity forever with God to continue to learn it, practice it, embrace it. So there's something powerful about that, and I think that we miss the point with a statement like, if you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. It's not just God's invisible blessings. It's literally a better way to walk about the earth right now. All right without raising any eyebrows here, hopefully, um, if someone could prove to me that Jesus didn't resurrect, that my whole faith was founded, and I actually believe that the physical resurrection is 
absolutely foundational in our, in our faith. But if somebody could prove they found the bones of Jesus, did DNA tests, all that kind of stuff, and that, and that this was all a farce, I, I came to the conclusion years ago that I wouldn't want to change the way I live. That's not a struggle I personally face. That's not a doubt that I, that I struggle with. But if it was, if someone could truly prove it to me, I'd still want to live the way that Jesus taught me to live. Because it's better. It's just better. The way of the basin and the towel is just, it's better. Imperfectly. We mess up and, and selfishness takes control a lot. But okay. So, um, so let's, let's kind of continue reflecting on that. You know, uh, so Jesus teaches us how to live by revealing what matters the most right before he dies. So as the church grew early on, um, and um, they were powerless, and they were committed to imitating Jesus, is it any surprise that this theme was so foundational in the early church? Um, you know, Paul writes about this in Philippians in his letter to the church in Philippi. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. I'll go on in a second. But the King James Version, which I don't typically quote, um, because we don't talk like it's 1611 anymore. Uh, but in the King James Version, the, the way that they use that, that um, verse 7, the way it's translated, it's a fairly literal translation. It's just literal translated in Elizabethan English. Uh, but he made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. I love that. It's not, he didn't, he didn't make himself have a bad reputation, just simply no reputation. Think about that. The, the image, prestige, prominence, power, all these other trappings of leadership were not only devalued, they were purposefully dismissed. He made himself of no reputation. And it's only in this form that he could serve and love and give and lead in its fullness. Other translations use emptied himself. And that, that emptied himself, this is so important because when we talk about servanthood and the cross, what is revealed in Jesus on the road to the cross is not simply servanthood, it's the power of humility and vulnerability that comes with the servanthood posture. It's not just, this is why the heart, I'm just going to hammer the heart for the last part of our talk here. Hammering the heart, called the heart um, posture that we have. Because, um, because the key is the humility and vulnerability by which we love others. Okay? Uh, in his reflections on Christian leadership, and I think it goes much beyond leadership into discipleship as a whole, uh, writer Henry, Henry Nouwen uh, refers to this whole idea as resisting the temptation to be relevant. Okay? Here's what he says, and, and I added the uh, italics there. I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader, or any disciple, I think, of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in the world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. Irrelevant meaning that we're not trying to be cool and flashy we're not trying to be always up on the latest subjects. We are a consistent, authentic, loving presence. And I think that's significant way beyond leadership. I think that is what opens the door to influential discipleship and evangelism in our world today. For people coming to Jesus, they have to see this, our vulnerable self being offered 
to others. We offer the hope that Jesus gives us through our own humble, imperfect lives, and we give what we have, and God multiplies it. Um, we trust God, we serve God and our neighbors. It's almost that simple. So in light of this, um, when we are formed by foot washing, here's a few things that we can maybe uh, take away. If we are formed by foot washing in the character of Christ, then Jesus will teach us how to resist the need to increase. We should not be against God using us in surprising ways and widening our influence wherever we're at, but that has too often become kind of the sole focus of people's career and achievement mindset, ministry mindset, bigger and better, right? Get more shares, get more likes, have more influence, right? The influencer movement is very strong right now. But the problem isn't, isn't even our desire to be influential. That's totally appropriate. I want to have influence. I desire to be influential in lives, sure. Um, it's, it's two things. Number one, it's, it's how we earn that influence. And it's how we wield that influence that Jesus wants to transform in us. And it's about what the heart desire is. Is our heart desire to give, to have more influence? Or is our heart desire to faithfully love and serve Jesus? And there's a real difference there. And so the servanthood way is the way of Jesus. Jesus trusted the heart of the Father to grow the movement rather than the path of self-promotion. We have to understand that this is all about imitating Jesus. Every few years, uh, because of some past connections that I have, I get invited to speak at like some really big conferences. Uh, And it's just because of past friendships. Um, But a couple of years ago, I spoke at this, it was was a a youth conference with maybe 1,200 kids or something like that, and I was the speaker for the weekend. And I get this huge stage in this big arena, all this impressive tech. I tell these stories, and I'm a very recognizable person over the weekend. People want to talk to me. Kids come up, they get nervous when you chat with the speaker. You know, very affirming. Feels very nice. Feels very nice to be important, to feel important. It's a great weekend, and then I head home, and the lawn needs mowed. And nobody gives a rip that I was just talking to an arena full of kids. Not at all. And I walk inside, and the dishes need to be done. And nobody cares. And one of them is going to prove my heart posture, and the other one won't. And the more I sit with it, the more I realize that my influence personally, and I know that my, my examples are very different than, than yours, but my influence personally is going to happen within 50 feet of that house and that yard in the greatest way, not in those two and a half days and four talks. My greatest influence in the world, the, God, the ways that God is going to use me most significantly. And so my heart posture in all of this is absolutely crucial, and bigger isn't always better, and stronger isn't always more impressive. And so you've each got your own spheres. You've each got your own temptations to say, this is what influence is going to look like. And you'll have to submit that to Jesus just like I I do to say, what does it look like, Lord, for me to actively love and to not be about bigger is better, self-promotion, whatever. What does humble servanthood with no strings attached, with no pride attached look like? And that leads us to the second thing is that Jesus teaches us if we are formed by foot washing to value the mundane moments that aren't flashy. Real simple, right? We, we often think that the big stuff that we do for God is the most significant. 
and not the kind word or the understanding approach that we take to someone who we disagree with that tells them that this is what Christian faith is like. Not about me pounding my views on you, but about me making space to seek to understand and to humbly love and stay consistent in my own life. These little moments, the little moments of helping one another out. And by the way, uh, I'm going to give you a chance to tell some stories in just a little bit. So I want you to already be thinking about how you've been impacted by another's simple little action to serve like Jesus did with, um, with the foot washing. But Jesus teaches us to value the non-flashy mundane moments as central to discipleship. Not insignificant, simply small. I hate that we link those two things. Not insignificant, simply small and daily. And then finally, Jesus prioritizes us, or he teaches us to prioritize the right things when we're formed by foot washing. Um, if this takes root in us, we learn to prioritize what Jesus prioritizes. And it changes how we view our days. It changes how we view obligations. What deserves our deepest focus, friends? When we send it through this lens, that often changes. What does the fullest extent of love look like in your life? This week, this message is probably kind of half-baked, um, because I had less time to reflect and think about preaching a message. Um, because serving in uh, some other ways were more important this week. And so for me, part of this learning to prioritize the right things means saying, when and where does simple acts of love become more important than big systems that we think that we need all the time? Or even job obligations for some of us. When does love look more important? Um, we all cheat, so choose to cheat in the right ways. That's a quote from Andy Stanley. He's got a book called Choose to Cheat, and he talks about how often our work lives take over our ability to love our families well. And he says at the end of the day, you're going to have to cheat on something. So don't cheat on your family. <laughs> um, but our loving presence will always be more significant in the kingdom than any of our external accomplishments. So we keep that in mind. <sighs> all right. Um, so you've each got your own priorities. This story, to me, sets me straight over and over and over again in my life. You'll each have your own priorities that may get skewed, uh, that need to be resettled by Jesus. Um, so, so we think in, in the lens of what did Jesus do when he had one day left to live? He brought his relationships closer. He chose to serve. He chose to love. And he didn't take advantage of it for himself and his own gain but for the sake of others. So, like I said, the heart and character of all of this simply cannot be stressed enough. Here's the thing, and you, I bet you all know this, because if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I'm guessing this has crept up in you. It's crept up in me. But you can have a servanthood focus in terms of the actions, and you can be totally full of bitterness, totally full of false humility, Totally full of self-righteousness because of your own piety. I serve Jesus way more than you. You know, like, like it, we, that is totally a thing that happens in, because we have this ranking system, because grace still hasn't taken root in the American church. And so, so we, we do these things. That is not... We, we, I've, oh, I've just, I'm giving up so much for Jesus. That is not the heavy burden. I'm sorry. There are sacrificial moments, but that is not the heavy burden that Jesus demands of it. 
You can read this that way. I have done this and you must do this for others. You can read it that way, but that is so easily twisted instead of formative in your life. Instead, we understand Jesus' action and words here as an invitation to serve as a direct expression of what Jesus has done for us and in us. He set us free from ourselves so that we can serve rather than adding another overpowering demand into our lives that makes us feel bad about not being good enough. Remember that quote at the beginning, right? What you believe about Jesus is revealed in what you do after you realize you don't have to do anything. We cannot talk about servanthood without understanding that grace forms the foundation for servanthood to be life-giving. Yes, there are boundaries. There's times to talk about that. But sometimes I think our world has gone so far into the self-care, and I'm I'm a huge fan of self-care, believe me, but so far into the world of self-care and boundaries that sometimes like, we forget how important relationships are out there and how, how beautiful it is to give up our time sometimes for the sake of loving another and our energy. There's beauty there too. One does not negate the other. And yes, if you're not healthy, then this, this attitude will never last at all. You'll just burn yourself out and you'll become all bitter, but then you're missing the point of this whole message. So, God makes us in ways that when we figure out how we are wired and we serve within those, life just makes sense a little more and it's fulfilling and it's beautiful. And so we trust that Jesus leads us to that as we discern. All right, so Jesus has washed the dirt from our feet. He has wiped our sins away. This was a symbolic action to understand Jesus saying, everything that's coming is me serving you out of love. Right now, and what's gonna happen on this cross? So we are now free and the pressure is off and we're free to love and care for other people as imitators of Jesus without needing to accomplish anything. And remember, for Jesus, this was truly living. This was showing the full extent of love and life. Um, making the most of his minutes. A day to live and Jesus kneels down. 